The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you this evening? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Yourself? Just the same, Father. Good to see you. You too. As always. Yes. Uh, Father, any prayer requests to begin the program tonight? Uh, definitely. Um, I, I start out by asking everyone, to please pray for the repose of the soul of Les Pugh. Uh, Mr. Pugh has been a long, long time viewer and supporter of what Catholics believe, and all things traditional Catholic, really. Uh, <clears throat> I understand uh, that he would begin his day by live streaming the masses and then offering his attendance uh, remotely, but he nonetheless offering that for our priests, and we certainly appreciate that. Uh, very faithful gentleman. Um, his wife, Hetty, is uh, suffering mightily uh, at his very sudden, unexpected death. He had just live-streamed the Mass this morning and then uh, died, apparently, of a heart attack today. <clears throat> so please keep less in your prayers, but also keep Hetty in your prayers as well. <clears throat> Fortunately, we have some children who help them. Uh, help... Uh, Let's have a traditional Catholic uh, requiem mass and um, help uh, Hetty also deal with the, the great loss. Um, and I, I'm sure one of our priests will be able to be there to uh, make sure that not only does Les have requiem masses offered in our various chapels, but also to have, that he will have a real traditional Catholic funeral mass at their home in, uh, at, at their hometown in Texas. So. Uh, but I do ask you to please keep both of them in your prayers, both Les, who passed away, and his uh, grieving wife, Hetty. Please also continue your prayers for Jerry Murphy, who's quite ill, and please remember also Tom Wright, and so many other dear souls we know who are in need of our prayers. I do ask you to pray for our country every day. We have a ballot initiative coming up now in November, here in Ohio, which is extremely important. It's a, it'll spell the difference whether or not uh, Ohio um, still remains essentially, a, I would say, a pro-life state, pro-life in the true Catholic sense of the word, <clears throat> or whether it basically sells its soul to the abortionist. The, um, the abortionists uh, of all stripes in Ohio and outside of Ohio, actually, are, are 
are focusing on this state to try to write into the Constitution of the state of Ohio a so-called right to put unborn babies to death, a right to kill babies in the womb, abortion. They euphemistically refer to it as the Reproductive Freedom Act, and it's neither, um, of course, reproductive, nor is it freedom uh, at all. Quite the contrary, but all of this is based on a lie in any case. But they want to write into the Constitution a um, this would um, write W R I T E a right R I G H T to an abortion, so that no one can stop it. Of course, what is hidden in all this, what is missing from all this language, is the the mention of any rights or authority of parents. And so, um, basically, parents are being written out of the formula entirely, everywhere, uh, with regard to, um, you know, a matter of transgendering children, matters of, uh, of uh, aborting children and so on. Uh, parents' rights are being, are being eliminated. Um, and that's exactly what the pro-abortionists want. Uh, they want the children in their own hands. Now, some of you might have seen the movie The Sound of Freedom. If you haven't, I do recommend that you see it. It's distressing, and it's distressing because it is real. We have to understand that this, the buying and selling of children for the uh, gravely immoral, perverted pleasures of, um, of, of evil, evil men and women, but mostly men, that... This is simply an extension of the whole idea of abortion. It begins with abortion in considering the life of the child to be expendable, something that should be sacrificed for the individual's convenience, uh, individual's benefit, whatever it might be. Um, you know, people have, have their own uh, expectations in life and their own plans, and when a child is conceived, and that child somehow is perceived to be an obstacle to uh, the grown-ups, as it were, uh, plans for himself or herself, then they, they see nothing wrong with putting the child to death. And the whole idea that a child's life can be used in this way, or abused in this way, or eliminated in this way, certainly lends itself to the very next step, and that is, well, if you can murder a child in the womb, for the sake of my convenience and my prosperity or my plans, why not use a child who's alive and use that child's life to serve my perverted fetishes? Uh, in other words, all of, this, all of this is of a piece. It all goes together. It's all based on the same ideas, follows the same principles, and ultimately leads to the same horrible, horrible conclusions. And so uh, we have to fight this with every fiber in our being here, uh, especially our, the moral fiber <laughs> being. So I'm asking you to join the 54-day Rosary Novenas that have already begun, but there are also coming others in the future in, in stages. Uh, there are those who have begun the 54-day Rosary Novena on the Feast of August 15th, the Assumption of Our Lady. That Rosary Novena, begun on August 15th, will conclude on the Feast of the Holy Rosary on October 7th. 
those who were not able to start the Rosary and Novena on August, 7, August 15th uh, have been invited to begin the Rosary and Novena today, August 22nd, the, the Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And that will take their Rosary and Novena to October 14th, I believe it is. And there is yet a third 54-day Rosary and Novena beginning on uh, September 15th, I believe that is, the Feast of the Seven Sorrows of Our Blessed Mother, and that will actually conclude the day before the vote, on November 7th. The vote will be November 8th, that will determine whether or not Ohio will basically sell itself, sell its soul, um, to the abortionists and, well, all the rest. They feel that if they can get this vote through, they can basically have their way with anything. They can, they can get Ohioans to vote for virtually anything. And we would expect that after that would come votes on uh, transgendering children in the schools and so on without any parental control or even knowledge. Uh, they, they intend to drive this all the way through. They want the perversion to be complete and they want to have free hand, free reign. They say they're coming for the children. They are here. And they're already taking the children now. I'd say that the movie The Sound of Freedom makes that very clear. So in any case, I do ask you to pray for our country. Please pray for the state of Ohio that its people make the right decision. And that decision that they make on November 8th will be just a step of many steps in the right direction now. So um, please do keep that all these intentions in your prayers. Well, Tom, uh, there you are. Okay. <laughs> okay. A, lot, a lot to ask for, for, but a lot, a lot need, is needed here. Yep. Well, Father, we uh, did not have a program last week because of the Holy Day, uh, the Feast of the Assumption. And uh, today, one week later, as you mentioned, we have the Feast Day of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So two very beautiful feast days of Our Lady, hopefully, to uh, offer some comfort and hope. And, uh, well, uh, just so people don't misunderstand, it's not that we, uh, we abstain from having programs on the Holy Days. Uh, many people might not realize that our priests are traveling on those holy days, as I was. And so you're right, we did not have a, a program because I was traveling the missions and offering Mass there. And spending some of the days as a guest of the airlines in Atlanta Airport, watching the thunder, hearing the thunder and watching the lightning. Uh, but nonetheless, managed to make it to St. Teresa of the Child Jesus Church in Parma for the evening mass. Good. Thank goodness. So, go. But I, I do apologize for the uh, lack of a program last last week, but it was for a good cause. Okay. Right. Well, we'll have double the questions for you tonight, Father. So. Well, I don't know if I have double the answers. Uh, you know, that's physically possible. Um, okay, well, well, a couple of different topics tonight, Father, but uh, I think some great, great viewer questions. Uh, first one I really wanted to get to was a question on sacred scripture. Um, it's one of our Faithful viewers wrote and said that he cannot seem to find a simple and straightforward answer to this question about sacred scripture. Uh, he says, why did the church put the Bible together? What was the primary purpose in doing so? I've done some reading on the history of how the Bible came to be, about how the canon of scripture was produced at the Council of Rome. Uh, what I don't understand, however, is why the church compiled various texts of different genres from multiple authors into one specific book. The reason I ask is because I want to study it and dive into it more, but as long as this mystery remains unresolved, I don't know how to approach it the right way. Would you answer that, Father? Well, uh, Tom, 
At first glance, that might, question might seem like a very simple, um, very simple question with a very simple answer. Okay, and I guess it is really, but the individual uh, who is writing that is actually asking a more, uh, let's say, I, I think anyway, maybe I'm reading into it, but a more um, particular question, looking for a particular answer. One might say, well, the reason why the church put all of these different books of the, uh, into one book, the Bible, um, which means simply the book, right, uh, is because all of these other books, the, these writings, were inspired by God. And this was the decision that the church made, the judgment that the church made, according to the authority that Jesus Christ gave to the apostles and through the apostles to the church uh, to make that judgment, to teach the gospel, preach the gospel to all nations. That's exactly what our Lord told the apostles. And all of the books of the Bible, of the Old Testament that, uh, that preceded the coming of our Lord, all of the books of the New Testament that came after our Lord's life, death, and resurrection, and ascension. All of those books were essentially about our Lord himself. They are all referred to him. And uh, so they are all about God's creation, our fall, and God's then plan for our redemption, and ultimately our salvation. So they all are united in that common theme, and they are all inspired by God. So they're not just human, uh, human works, okay? They were inspired by God in the human mind uh, to record them, to write them down, to convey them to us for all posterity as divine revelation. We refer to the sacred scriptures, therefore, the Bible, as divine revelation and one of the two pillars of the church that Christ established, the other being the work of the Holy Ghost in the church's history known as sacred tradition. And these are the two pillars of faith for us, what we call the deposit of faith. Deposit in the sense that you'd have a deposit of something precious and valuable, right? Uh, in this case, the most valuable record we have, right? Record of God's work and uh, God's love for us. Now, but I detect in here another question, and that's a deeper question, and that has to do with the fact that the books of the Bible that have been assembled in, under one cover um, have are different genre. I think he mentions that. Okay, and it's true. You do have historical books, you have sapiential books, you have gospels, which are historical books. They met, well. They're actually called by St. Justin Martyr, I think, the memoirs of the apostles. <coughs> you have epistles, St. Paul. You have prophetical books of the Old Testament. And the uh, book of uh, the Apocalypse in the, in the New Testament. Uh, not the last book written, but the last book actually in the, uh, in the Bible itself. So... He's right. You have all these di different genre of writings. But again, the uniting factor in them all, the critical factor, 
that places them in the Bible is that this is the canon of divine revelation, of, of revealed truth committed to writing. Records of the past, recordings of the apostles' own memories uh, inspired by God to record them in the Gospels for our benefit today. The epistles of St. Paul, St. James, St. John, so on, St. Jude, and uh, all of these things were written down, as St. Peter says, for our benefit, not to be interpreted by us individually according to private our private interpretation, but the Church herself is the custodian and the guardian of these things and their correct understanding. And that is why the Church has, has gathered them all together. They're all about, as I say, the same thing. They're about God's uh, redemption of mankind after our fall and uh, the loving work of God in, in our justification and sanctification and ultimately glorification in heaven. Um, so that is the theme that unites all of them. And uh, the most significant thing that unites them all is that they are all divinely revealed. Mm -hmm. okay. So I hope that uh, sheds some light on it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the fact that, that these, these books are a different genre, I mean, you have, you have the Canticle of Canticles, okay? Uh, which is basically kind of a, a, a love poem, but it is a spiritual love poem. It's about, in a very most tender way, it shows um, this chaste romantic love. But, you know, it hearkens already in the Old Testament to the Gospel where our Lord continually refers to the Kingdom of Heaven as a wedding feast, celebrating this, this great love. And it is the love between uh, Almighty God, our Creator, become our Redeemer as well, and the human soul, sanctified by grace, uh, that returns His love. Um, you might really say that uh, the Canticle of Canticles is about divine love and um, how it inspires and uh, is, is, is met with our love, the creature's love in return. And um, you might say that the entire, uh, the entirety of the Bible, all of the individual books enclosed within the Bible, whether they are historical, whether they're prophetic, whether they're sapiential, whatever, they're actually all about that. It's all about that one great story, right? yeah. divine story. Father, how should a um, traditional Catholic go about studying the Bible? He mentions he, he wants to study it and dive into it more. What's, um, what would you recommend for that? Because there's obviously so many Protestant tools um, out, out there, scripture studies, different, different things. But um, how does a traditional Catholic study scripture? Unfortunately, the Protestant studies are based upon human device and human wisdom. Whereas the Catholic Church alone, through the apostles, was given the authority to actually authoritatively uh, interpret sacred scripture as God intended it when he gave it to us, right? Um, y yes, you find uh, kind of a cacophony of uh, almost, um, you know, among the Protestant different sects and groups, you find disagreements about what this passage means, what that passage means. That's why St. Peter warns 
that we are not left to our own devices merely to try to wrangle for ourselves what this or that passage of sacred scripture means for me here and now, and uh, to the exclusion of what it might mean to somebody else somewhere else here and now. Um, and uh, the Protestants have wrangled over the Bible and fought over the Bible, you know, uh, since they started, right? <laughs> since the beginning of Protestantism. Um, so when a Catholic approaches the reading of the sacred scripture, he has to realize that he's dealing with something sacred. He's dealing with something God-given. So he has to approach it with an enormous amount of respect. Um, but that respect also has to be met by an enormous amount of humility, that he realizes that what he's, what he's going to read here is a, a divine mystery. And um, that it is not given to him to decide for himself what he thinks it means or wants it to mean for him. So he should always read the sacred scripture with a very sound Catholic commentary. Now, St. Augustine, uh, St. Jerome, uh, St. Leo the Great, St. Uh, Ambrose, uh, in the West you have, you know, um, St. John Chrysostom, great, great writer, father of the church in the East, St. Uh, you know, you have the uh, uh, the Cappadocian Fathers, you have Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nicianzen, uh, Basil the Great, they all commented. They wrote commentaries on the sacred scriptures. And those commentaries are very enlightening. The Church even says that when these, these Fathers of the Church agree, uh, are essentially unanimous in their interpretation, that's an infallible, that's an infallible interpretation of the meaning, the true meaning of the sacred scriptures. When the Fathers of the Church where the earliest bishops of the church concur in exactly what they mean. Okay, So um, the Catholic should approach reading sacred scripture with the benefit of these insights, <clears throat> their celestial insights, uh, to, to open up the pages of St. Augustine and read uh, at a commentary by St. Augustine about the, the various books of the Bible and read them, in, you might say, in tandem or parallel would be a tremendous, beautiful thing. The Hadock Bible tries to provide that to a certain extent by giving the text of the sacred scripture, but underneath then, at the bottom of the page, citations from the fathers of the church commenting, but very brief commentaries. It's just enough to whet your appetite to say, make you think, oh, I want to go and read more about what St. Jerome says about this or what St. Augustine says about this. Um, now, a Catholic might say at this point, well, that's fine, Father Jenkins, that's all nice, we get the idea. Yes, I would love to be able to sit down uh, with the uh, book of Genesis, with the, uh, the, 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 the prophecies of Isaiah, uh, with the book of, you know, the first book of Kings, and I'd love to read the commentaries of St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, St. Jerome, and so on, <clears throat> but where will I find them? And the answer is actually, they're much more available now than they've ever been before. Uh, one can go to the New Advent website, find the extensive list of writings of the Fathers in English, and um, one, one can see so many writings, uh, translations in, in English of uh, St. Augustine's writings, his letters, um, and 
and so on. And, and the, the same with St. Ambrose and St. Jerome and, and all the rest of the fathers of the church. They've got such a tremendous resource there. Uh, the writings of St. Justin Martyr, right? his first and second apology, his dialogue with the Jew Trifon, and so on. Uh, they're all there in English. Um, so, um, as I say, many of them um, are books written as commentaries on the sacred scriptures. So, I would say that that would be a very good way to start, not just to pick up the Bible and start reading. But, um, <clears throat> I mean, let's face it, Tom. I mean, I could pick up the Bible and just start reading it on my own. <clears throat> and that would be a very good thing. But suppose I had someone like St. Augustine, who was able to sit by my side, right, and explain, right? Uh, how much more benefit would I get from that? Now, again, the Protestant has the idea, well, the, the Spirit inspires me with when I read to understand it. I say, wait a minute, what's the example sacred scripture sets? What about the Ethiopian eunuch who is traveling uh, back to Ethiopia and his queen Candace? And, you know, Philip the deacon is transported by an angel to the roadway where he, this, this uh, Ethiopian servant to the great queen of Ethiopia, Candace, uh, he's passing by and he's reading of the writings of the prophet Isaiah. Remember, this, this book wasn't a printed book. There were no printing presses back then. So this had to be a handwritten copy of the prophecies of Isaiah that this Ethiopian eunuch was reading. And Philip actually heard him. In those days, actually, it was more common to read aloud. St. Augustine uh, is reputed to have been one of the few people at his time who actually could, could read without moving his lips, without speaking. It was considered to be an unusual talent. Um, and so the customary way for reading back then was for somebody actually to read aloud to himself. That's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, <clears throat> even to this day, the priests are required to pronounce with their mouths the words of the breviary when they pray the divine office. So, <clears throat> in any case, uh, God provided Philip the deacon uh, for this eunuch to explain to him the meaning of what he was reading. Uh, the prophecies of Isaiah about the coming Redeemer and his sufferings and his triumph. And so uh, God provided this deacon, Philip, to comment and provide the insight and the true understanding of what this man could not read. Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the man said, how can I understand? I need someone to explain it to me. And that's the spirit with which we should also approach the sacred scripture. That we need divine wisdom to understand divine wisdom. And uh, certainly the fathers of the church understood this. They prayed for that. They received it. And uh, they can give us very powerful insights into the true meaning of the scriptures. So it'd be very foolish to delve into uh, the depths of the sacred scriptures without a very good guide. And God has provided those guides in the writings of the fathers. Hmm. Yeah. So I start right there. Yeah. Okay. Obviously praying and asking for the guidance of the Holy Ghost. Indispensable, right? Yeah. That's what St. Augustine himself would have done and all the other fathers of the church in commenting on sacred scripture, that's where they would have started. That's where we need to start.
But then, having started with that prayer to God, humble prayer of God, to God for enlightenment, that we, uh, we have uh, the companionship of the fathers to help us. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's very good. Thank you, Father. Very good. Um, okay, another email viewer says, I'm sorry, but when I hear the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, I think of John Paul II. I believe the Holy Eucharist is the body, blood, and divinity of Christ, but I want to know if Christ has a soul since he is perfect. Does God also have a soul and the Holy Ghost as well? Uh, I'm a little puzzled, but I want to know if Christ has a soul since he is perfect, as though, as though there was some opposition between having a soul and being perfect, right? I mean, that's the implication, but I don't know if that's what the writer meant. Uh, the fact is, absolutely, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in becoming man, taking human nature, and body and blood and soul, you have to have a human soul to be human, to have human nature. It is essential to human nature that there be a soul. And so, Jesus Christ had, and still has, to this day, in heaven, at the right hand of the Father, a human soul. We might ask, well, did Jesus Christ have knowledge and understanding? <clears throat> did he have a human intelligence? And the answer is, well, well, of course he did. Did Jesus Christ have a human will? a human intelligence to know what is true, uh, humanly speaking, and a human will to love what is good, as human, humanly speaking, to have the power to love? And the answer is, yes, absolutely. Our Lord manifested that continually during his life on earth. Yes, he manifested his divine love of his divine person, the second person of blessed eternity, but he actually manifested his human love in so many ways by the tender compassion that he spoke of. So often, I have compassion on the multitudes. That is the human will of Christ there speaking, not only of his divine love, but also his human love. And uh, he loves us with both the divine will and the human will. The human intellect, the human will, the power of knowing and loving, these are powers of the soul. And unless there was a human soul, there would be no power for our Lord to know as man or to love as man. <clears throat> but here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, Father, if it is possible that this chalice pass from me without my drinking of it, that is suffering. And yet, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. He's talking about the human soul the human will of his human soul. And he totally accepts the will of the Father in heaven um, on our behalf. So there is no doubt that, that Jesus Christ, the human soul, that the Son of God became man fully, integrally, in all of its perfections, uh, with none of its sins or failings, um, and that his humanity was perfect. The Church has defined that as a matter of Catholic dogma. It would be heretical to, to deny that. 
Uh, something puzzles me. Did, did they say that this was never taught before, like in the 1940s? Um, something that, in fact, it wasn't exactly clear. It says. Uh, I was very puzzled by that. It just says, did not teach that in the 1940s. Well, means that they had better have taught that. that. Yeah. <laughs> if they didn't, I think we can understand why we are where we are right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a matter of divinely revealed Catholic faith you know, yeah. and defined Catholic faith. Yeah. Okay. Um, another question, Father, how did the assumption in... Oh, by the yeah. way, I should also mention sure. that when our Lord died on the cross, his soul descended into hell, basically. That's what he's praying in the creed, going to limbo to uh, speak to the souls of the deceased, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, the just souls of the Old Testament who died in the grace of God but could not enter heaven. The soul of our Lord went to them. So, yes, the, the human soul of our Lord was truly active and, and well, agents, an agent of God, God's will and God's, uh, God's power. And so, that, I'm sorry. And that same soul is present in the Holy Eucharist? Uh, Yes, it is present in the in the Blessed Sacrament. Absolutely, it was the reunion of that of that human soul with the body of Christ lying in the tomb that actually caused the resurrection. That was the resurrection, the reunion of the dead body of our, our Lord. Even though the body of our Lord was still united to the divinity, but the Son of God, even as it lay in the tomb, but it did not have that human soul. And only when the human soul of Christ was reunited with his body and revivified his body, only then did the resurrection take place. So uh, the reason I, I stress this is because I'm rather surprised by the question. And, uh, but I think it, it, we have to be very, very clear on that. Yes, as the church herself has spoken so clearly, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, really became man. And yes, he had body and blood and soul, and still does. Yeah. Very good. Father, how did the assumption and queenship of Mary get to be mysteries of the rosary when they weren't even considered doctrines of the church until 1950 under Pope Pius XII? Because Catholics believed in these things. Because this was Catholic, popular Catholic devotion. These, these doctrines of the Immaculate Conception and Assumption of Our Lady, the one, the Immaculate Conception, defined December 8th, 1854, and the Immaculate Conception, what was it, uh, November, I'm trying to remember, 1950, um, these were defined at that point. And when the church defines a dogma, it is an, out of essentially necessity, not only devotion, but it's a necessity to make a statement of faith where there is a question that has arisen. But the Catholic people believed in the uh, immaculate Conception of Our Lady, and in the Assumption of Our Lady. Uh, my, my goodness, uh, you know, the, the, uh, St. John Damascene uh, wrote about the Assumption of Our Lady back in the 8th century. Um, and Catholics, theologically, there were questions that had to be answered about the Immaculate Conception. How Our Lady's soul could be preserved free from original sin, and yet she would be redeemed nonetheless. But those theological questions were answered. But the belief of the church was always there. Um, now, some of the fathers did not ex express that as clearly as we would express it today. Some might have even called 
you know, say, well, there were theologically the problems that had to be addressed. They might have mentioned that. But the fact is, the, the Catholic people really did uh, believe in Our Lady's utter sinlessness. And uh, from the moment of conception and her assumption, well, it was the assumption was really clear because there was no grave of Mary anywhere. There were no relics of Mary anywhere, ever, <laughs> in the history of the Church. And you'd think if the Catholics would have treasured the relics of anyone, <coughs> it would have been of the mother of their Savior, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But no Catholic ever claimed to have a first-class relic of our Blessed Lady, even though that would have been the greatest prize <laughs> uh, beyond, I mean, we even have the shroud of our Lord, and we have the blood on the shroud, which is really a first-class relic of our Lord. We don't have any such relic of Our Lady. She was assumed into heaven. Um, and even with regard to the Immaculate Conception, I mean, that affects us here in the Cincinnati Archdiocese very seriously. There's a reason why we chose the name Immaculate Conception for our church and our school. And the reason is, I've said this before, and I'll try to be brief here. Um, back in the early 1800s, Catholics were persecuted here in Cincinnati by the Lutheran majority. Catholics were treated very badly. Uh, they were excluded from a great deal of life in, in Cincinnati and uh, were considered basically second-class citizens here. And uh, there was even an occasion where a... Um, a, an Italian bishop was sent to take up his uh, his uh, diocese in Bogota, um, and this was in the middle 1800s. And he came to the United States, and he he had time before he was due to arrive in Bogota. So he came to tour some of the dioceses of the United States to see how they, they can talk to the bishops there and, and see you know how they did and certain ways they handled things and to learn about the Americas. And one of those dioceses he came to was Cincinnati. And uh, there was a revolutionary, one of these, uh, what we could even call, uh, from our point of view, a leftist revolutionary uh, named Kossuth. You can look him up. I mean, he's actually fairly well known in the annals of history uh, as a revolutionary activist rabble-rouser. Well, he happened to be in Cincinnati at the time, and he denounced that bishop as having been a cruel suppressor and repressor of the revolutionaries. And he was, uh, he, he was even accused of murdering and uh, you know, attacking some of these people. Uh, so he was denounced for crimes. Um, and uh, this denunciation was taken so seriously here that there were mobs of people roaming the streets of Cincinnati hunting him, hunting this bishop this visiting bishop, <laughs> and he had to escape under cover of darkness and in disguise to get out of the city alive. And after that, the bishop of Cincinnati um, had a, a visitor from the Pacific Northwest, a missionary, a missionary who was uh, acquainted with and had worked with Father DeSmet. Okay, he was considered like the apostle of the Northwestern Territory of the United States. Well, this missionary uh, had a reputation for being a very, very holy uh, man with a great love for God, very prayerful. And so the Bishop of Cincinnati asked him, what must I do in order to have peace for my Catholics here in Cincinnati? And the man told him, well, there are three things you have to do. 
you have to ask, tell all of your priests in your diocese to offer the votive mass of the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady. Point being, there was already a votive mass in honor of the Immaculate Conception of Our Blessed Mother in the Missal. It was not a feast day designated yet for a defined dogma. That involved the second point. He said the second point was not only have them offer that votive mass, but have your diocese petition the Holy See to define the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. It had not yet been defined in 1850. And have your people pray for that definition of that dogma. And the Bishop of Cincinnati fulfilled all three of those conditions. He had his priests offer the vote of Mass in their missiles of the Immaculate Conception. He had them, the diocese petitioned for the definition of the dogma, and the people prayed for it. And lo and behold, December 8th, 1854, Pope Pius IX defined the dogma in the newly reconstructed Basilica, Archbasilica of St. Paul outside the walls. And it was a grand event, a magnificent event. So, um, but it shows that the doctrine was already there. It was already believed. It was already even considered kind of a doctrine of the faith, even before it had been defined, because it was the tradition of the Catholic faithful to believe in it. So I hope that helps to, uh, you know, explain the, uh, how it could be that those mysteries would be part of the rosary from St. Dominic's time in the 1200s, long before the, they were defined as dogmas of faith. Very good. Okay, uh, Father, a viewer says, I was having a conversation with a Lutheran, and he said, quote, the Catholic Church invents things to scare people into giving them money, and that's why Martin Luther left. End quote. He then went on to say, quote, I don't mind Catholics nowadays, but the Catholic Church uh, medieval times was out for people's money. How do you respond to that, Father? Well, I think it's funny. He's not scared by modern-day Catholics. They're not scary to anybody. <laughs> uh, that might be due to a lack of conviction. But in any case, um, to say that the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages invented things to scare people out of their money, uh, he, he, he just makes a statement, a gratuitous statement. Does he give any evidence for it? Does he cite any examples for it? Or is it just a dogmatic fact because he says it, because his Protestant minister said it from their pulpit or whatever. Uh, so the statement is hardly even worth you know, paying attention to. The fact is the Catholic Church did not invent things. He's probably talking, I mean, if, if he were to pin him down, he might not even realize it himself, but he's probably talking about the doctrine of purgatory, um, I imagine, but it has nothing to do with scaring people out of their money. Uh, I would say uh, Protestant ministers um, are, are, are no less, uh, shall we say, uh, inclined or even guilty of scaring people <laughs> out of their money by what they have to say. Uh, a lot of fire and brimstone there, right? Uh, so the doctrine of hell was not invented by Catholics to scare people out of their money. Uh, our Lord speaks of hell 64 times in the Gospels, um, and it was not to scare people out of the money. And anyone who would be claiming to speak in the name of Christ who would not mention hell would be betraying hell and the people he spoke to. 
Um, what you want to do is, is scare people out of their sinfulness so they have the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, that's the point of, of putting the fear of God in people. Okay? Were there unscrupulous ministers among the Protestants who would scare people with the idea of uh, their money? Yeah. Were there unscrupulous priests who would do so? No doubt there were, certainly. But in doing, in doing this, they were not representing the church, they were representing themselves. In doing this, they were actually uh, defying the church and, and, uh, and uh, actually attacking the church uh, by resorting to this, this tactic, this unworthy tactic. And the church itself certainly would condemn what they did. Um, so, you know, what is gratuitously asserted can be gratuitously denied. And in this case, uh, I'd like, you know, if we're going to respond to something specific, we'd like to know, we'd like the specifics of the accusation anyway. Um, um, but is there, is there a certain appeal to the fear of the Lord in Catholicism? Absolutely. Even as there certainly was in the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, is there a matter of guilt? People are feeling guilty for their sins. Well, it's a matter of them feeling responsible. And if they feel guilty because they have a sense of responsibility for what they've done, that's a good thing. They should feel guilty for the bad things they do. Take responsibility to correct them, to stop doing the bad things, and to make reparation for them. This is all good and doesn't involve, doesn't involve trying to scare people out of their money. So, yeah. anyway. <laughs> I don't know if that's really the answer that he's looking for, but... Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, Father, we also had a couple um, questions about grace. Maybe we could end with that. We've mentioned grace a couple of times on the program tonight, but um, one of our viewers wanted to know uh, what, uh, what exactly is it that makes a soul in the state of sanctifying grace pleasing to God? Well, that has to do with the very nature of sanctifying grace. Okay. Um, this gentleman was talking about a minute ago about uh, the Catholic Church, even opposed to the Protestant Church. Um, grace itself, any grace, is a supernatural help or gift from God. Very general definition. A supernatural help that God gives to the soul. The human soul. Uh, the church distinguishes between actual grace and sanctifying grace. And actual grace is a helping grace from God. What it does is it gives a kind of supernatural strength to our minds and our hearts, our intellects and our wills, our intellects, our minds to understand the truth and our wills to love what is good and to love what is good enough to do what is good and not to succumb to the temptation to do something evil. So that actual grace is exactly what it calls itself. It is the grace to act. It is the grace given to the powers of our soul to have faith, have hope, have charity, be prudent and just and temperate and brave, have fortitude, and so on. All of these virtues. It is a grace from God to have the gifts of the Holy Ghost beginning with fear of the Lord and, and ultimately having wisdom, a union of our wills with the will of God. Now, um, but all of those graces, those actual graces, have a, an objective. 
they are not ends in themselves. They are meant to actually move the human soul into a, a state, a condition, an enduring condition of the soul that makes this, the soul holy and pleasing to God. In other words, all of these actual graces are meant to move the soul to uh, give its consent to the grace of God to receive faith, hope, and charity, and that love of God to bring sanctifying grace into the soul. And sanctifying grace is not the same as the actual graces. Actual graces are transient graces that come and go according to the need of the moment. But sanctifying grace is what they're all for, and they are for placing the soul and keeping the soul in the state of innocence before God. You see, in order to be innocent before God, in order for our souls to be holy and pleasing to God, we have to first be justified. We have to be justified from sin. And in order to be justified from sin, there are certain things we have to do. We have to will certain things. We have to cooperate with the graces that God gives us, the actual graces, to repent of our sins, uh, to um, have true contrition for our sins, make a firm purpose of amendment for our sins, and then receive the absolution and the grace of God through the sacrament of penance or through a perfect act of charity and love for God. And uh, this, this, as a result of the actual graces moving us to consent to all of these things, and it's basically a matter of consenting to God's will in all of these things, then places us in a state of justification. The Protestant doesn't have any concept, concept of this because the Protestant says that there is no such thing as sanctifying grace and so you can't have actual graces ordered to the sanctification of the soul because the Protestant says, following Luther, that the human soul now has been so corrupted by sin it is basically unsalvageable in that it can't be sanctified. Um, that the only, the only grace possible for it is the grace that moves it to believe. And what does it have to believe? It has to believe that Jesus Christ is its Lord and its Savior, that Jesus Christ has paid for our sins on the cross and has redeemed us, and therefore our sins would not be imputed to us. So the sins are there, they're real, but we're not held responsible or blameworthy for them, that Jesus has taken that upon himself. And once we believe that, we accept that, we embrace that idea, then we are saved from that moment on no matter what we do. But we don't have to be sanctified. In other words, one does not actually have to give up sin or the attachment to sin. And Luther himself said that it was impossible for us to give up the attachment to sin because we are so corrupted by sin. That there is justification, but justification by faith alone, but there is no sanctification of the human soul. So much so that Luther even said that uh, the souls who are actually in heaven right now, he described as snow-covered dunghills, snow-covered piles of manure, because they remain corrupted as they are, and yet Christ has covered them over with the 
veneer of his uh, of his purity, of, of, of his goodness, right, his merit, whatever you want to call it. Um, but the human soul is is incapable of being, of being sanctified even by God. Uh, this is not the teaching of the gospel. This is the teaching of Martin Luther. Christ said, "Be holy, even as your, be your perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect." Okay. And uh, time and time again, our Lord prayed for that for us and taught us to pray for that, uh, to reject sin, to choose Him, so that we uh, seek not only to be justified of our sins as the beginning of God's work in us, but we also seek that sanctification which makes the soul in a state of being holy and pleasing to God. We call it to be a child of God, and as a child of God, adopted by grace, to be an heir of heaven, to have an inheritance. St. Paul talks about that, having an inheritance from our Lord by virtue of his death. He has willed to us everlasting life. You know? so, um, so what is that sanctifying grace in the soul? I mean, this is exactly where you started, Tom, with... What does this mean? Well, sanctifying grace is a supernatural quality. It's a supernatural quality of the soul. Now, it's something supernatural, it's something spiritual. It's obviously not made of atoms and molecules. It's not something you can see, you see, touch, not something you can smell or taste. It's, it's spiritual, it's invisible, any more than you can smell or taste or touch the soul. But it is as real as the soul because it is a quality that inheres in the soul. It basically uh, is like a supernatural, well, in philosophy they would call it something added to the soul, something accidental in the sense that it's something not of the nature of the soul, but something that is super added to the soul. Now, I mean, you and I might think in materialistic terms and say, okay, I, I have a chocolate bar, okay? Um, probably maybe a poor example, or a marble statue, okay? Um, and um, I would say, okay, there's, there are things that pertain to the very nature of the statue and the nature of the marble, but there are, there are things that are qualities of the marble and qualities of the statue, qualities that have been placed there artificially, that is, by an act that something is added, super, superimposed upon that thing. And it gives it a quality that goes beyond what it naturally has according to its nature. And uh, this is what God does in a sense to the soul in giving it to this of himself. He really creates, it's created grace. He creates in that soul a condition a quality that makes the soul beautiful to him, holy to him, something that reflects in a unique and supernatural way his own holiness. Even allows that soul, by a created grace that God instills in that soul, to participate in his own divine life. It's like the seed of divine life is planted in that soul. Is this something that um, is theologically so well defined that the church has dogmatically declared some 
theological formulas as being, you know, divine Catholic faith? Uh, no. Uh, even among the great theologians of the church, there are discussions and have been for hundreds of years about the exact nature of the sanctifying grace. But it is a supernatural mystery how a fallen human soul can be justified from sin by the sacrifice of Christ, the Son of God, offered for it, and how that soul then can be not only justified, but can be elevated to a supernatural life by grace that God creates and instills in that soul as a participation in his own divine life. That's a mystery. It's as much of a mystery, you might say, as how God became man, how God could become incarnate and take human nature to himself. So we shouldn't be surprised to find the theologians of the church, the greatest minds of the church, um, actually um, disputing in their own charitable way um, the different aspects of sanctifying grace. And the church actually seeing these argumenta as being beneficial because they each in their own way bring something out, something wondrous about sanctifying grace. And they, they actually focus on some beautiful and powerful aspect of sanctifying grace. Even these discussions, even the, as you might say, disagreements. Um, now we know that the reality uh, surpasses all these disagreements. The reality of sanctifying grace is something greater than all the arguments put together that the mind could conceive. St. Thomas Aquinas understood that. St. Augustine understood that certainly long before him. And so, you know, all of the theologians of the uh, Samadhinchenses, the, the, the uh, Carmelites and the Jesuits, they all understand, the traditional theologians, that the reality of sanctifying grace goes far beyond all of their arguments. And, uh, you know, St. Thomas was willing, was actually seen picking up all the manuscripts uh, that were uh, recorded of his, of his, of his uh, teachings, uh, theological teachings, and uh, he was carrying them out to burn them because he had this mystical experience with our Lord in the crucifix at Mass, and he realized that all of these arguments are like straw, he said, compared to the reality and the, the beauty of, uh, of the reality of what he was write, writing about. So there was no real comparison, you know. Um, and so it is with all true theologians of the church, they realize that. So all we can do is try to elucidate the, uh, the wonder of sanctifying grace. But it, it is a fact that Christ came not only to justify us, but to sanctify the human soul, and ultimately to glorify the human soul in heaven. Not just to fill heaven with a bunch of snow-covered dunghills, <laughs> but uh, as though... You know, you had to watch your step everywhere. You, you got the eight poor angels up there having to deal with this fallen humanity. Nothing but a bunch of snow-covered dunghills to decorate heaven with. This is not what Christ did. This is an insult to him to say that this is all he could do and all he really intended to do. Um, no, no. Uh, Christ came to sanctify us, to give us a share of the divine life. <clears throat> and that requires sanctifying grace. You, you might say, well... Is there any way I can appreciate, uh, in any tangible way, <clears throat> what sanctifying grace does? 
in the soul. I mean, I, I understand, okay, I know when you're baptized a baby, you have this charisma or this mark, this character that's imprinted on your soul. It's a spiritual quality that is imprinted there by God and will be there forever as part of your identity. When you're, uh, when you're confirmed, a character is imprinted, a spiritual mark is placed on your soul, a spiritual quality is placed there. It's part of your identity forever. When you're ordained a priest, the same. Spiritual character is imprinted on your soul forever and ever. God sees it, it is absolutely real. It's part of your identity. God sees you that way. Um, when you're in the state of sanctifying grace, it's not this indelible mark on the soul. Sanctifying grace can be lost and regained. But it nonetheless does have the character of this spiritual mark on the soul, in the sense that it has a spiritual quality that suffuses the soul and makes the soul holy and pleasing to God. And it might be helpful to understand that in light of the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Why? Because the virtues of faith and hope and charity, while not identical with sanctifying grace, are necessarily included in the life of sanctifying grace. That the only the souls in the state of sanctifying grace can have the supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity, or perhaps better yet, only souls who have the supernatural virtues of faith and hope and charity can be in the state of grace. Even souls without the virtue of charity, who have the virtue of faith and the virtue of hope, but because of mortal sin, they have betrayed their love for God, they are not in the state of grace. St. Paul talks about faith, hope, and charity. It says without charity, faith is... If I had faith great enough to remove mountains, without charity, nothing. I'm nothing in the eyes of God. And um, all good works are nothing without the virtue of charity to inspire them. All faith, all works, without charity, it's worthless. They cannot save any soul. They cannot justify any soul. So, in other words, we have to have the three virtues that God instills in the soul himself by his supernatural power, the grace of faith, the grace of hope, and the grace of charity, be in the state of sanctifying grace. Perhaps if we understood, okay, well, if this is the first effect of sanctifying grace in the soul, and that the vir these virtues in the person's soul are absolutely necessary for a person to be in a state of grace, I can at least understand the power of this grace, sanctifying grace, resident in the soul, abiding in the soul, and what it does for the soul. You can see, if a soul has the supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity, you can readily see why that soul would be, in the eyes of God, holy and pleasing. Because of its faith, and because of its hope, and especially because of its charity, its love for God. Why that would make a soul holy and pleasing to God.
Father, how does the uh, how does this um, doctrine of sanctifying grace coincide with the virtue of humility? Uh, it seems that many saints, um, when speaking of themselves, they never speak about uh, their virtues. They never speak about really the the fact that they are so pleasing to God. But rather, on the contrary, they speak of their sins and their un unworthiness. Um, so, how do those two? How, how does the virtue of humility? They, when they're talking of humility, they're talking about what they are of themselves. <clears throat> when they're talking about the faith, hope, and charity that is in their souls, they're talking about what God has done. It makes them all the more humble to talk about what God has done for them. Prime example, St. Paul. St. Paul does exactly what you're saying. He talks about how he is unworthy to be known as an apostle because he persecuted the Church of Christ. He refers to him as one abortivus, one born out of due season, of due time, by the grace of God. And he says, by the, but the grace of God has not been void in me. Right? And if I'm going to glorify in anything, let me glorify in my infirmities and my weaknesses, because God's grace and power is made perfect in my infirmities. What does Our Lady say? He who is almighty has done great things to me, and holy is his name. He has regarded the lowliness of his handmaid. Right? This is what all the saints say. You see what I am and who I am of myself? Nothing knows itself. That's what I am of myself. But I see the grace that God has given me. And I marvel at the grace that God has given me. Especially because He, the Almighty, has given it to me, who am such a nothing. That God has given His grace to me. It would be the height of ingratitude for a person who had been blessed and elevated by God to be so enamored of the thought of his own humility that he would not appreciate the reality and, and actually be filled with wonder and admiration and gratitude to God for the blessings that God has given. Our Lady, even in protesting, saying, uh, you know, behold the hand of the Lord, she did not obsess with the fact about the fact that she was just some poor gal <laughs> growing up in in in, uh, in Nazareth. Uh, she was not obsessed with the idea that oh, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. She glorified God because He regarded her loneliness, and He gave her this tremendous. Uh, well, who who can estimate right? The, the grandeur of her vocation. He called her to the vocation to be the mother of God. He conceived her without original sin for the sake of that vocation. And it was her very humility that enabled her to appreciate the greatness of the favors that she had received, the privileges and so on. So, yeah, I mean, the saints show that, Tom, that the necessity of their humility in order to appreciate the, the greatness of the graces they received. St. Paul speaks of that 
in the gospel. He talks about himself in, in, in such a way that he really um, reflects that awareness of who he was, where he came from, and the fact that God has drawn him out of that darkness and has appointed him on this great mission. And um, he is uh, not only sublimely grateful, but he's eternally grateful to God for doing that and gives God all the credit for it. Um, that's what humility does. It certainly does not um, allow the concept or the awareness of one's own personal lowliness, it does not allow that to overshadow or obscure or distract in any way from the greatness of the graces received. Quite the contrary. But only a saint can do that. Yeah. Be aware of both of those things. What, Father, what about the, uh, the indwelling of the Blessed Trinity? Is that, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the virtues of faith, hope, and charity that Eshel mm -hmm. and the state of sanctifying grace uh, has, but um, what about the, the indwelling of the Blessed Trinity? Is that synonymous with, with sanctifying grace? Is that what sanctifying grace <clears throat> does? Is that actually just It, it, it really life? is. It really is a, a divine presence in the soul. Um, our Lord says in St. John chapter 6, those who would receive him in Holy Communion, uh, uh, partaking of his body and his blood, and therefore in his sacrifice for them, right? We know that it's the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and the Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist. Uh, our Lord says, the Father and I will come and we will dwell within him. Of course, where the Father and the Son are, the Holy Ghost must be because he is the love between the Father and the Son, right? So the Blessed Trinity itself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, actually dwell in some means within the souls of those in the state of sanctifying grace. Where there is faith and hope and charity, where God is loved, he dwells there in a way... You know, God, God is everywhere by, by nature, okay? Uh, he has to be, otherwise there would be nowhere. I mean, it's God's will that makes anything anything at all. Uh, he sustains it, he brings it into existence and sustains it in existence. Uh, so God has to be present there by his knowledge and his power and so on. But, um, but we're talking about a supernatural presence of God that is beyond the natural presence by which God is everywhere. That God is personally present, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, within the souls of those who have faith and hope and charity. In other words, those who are in the state of grace. Their souls are holy and pleasing to God. All of these concepts are tied up together inseparably. The indwelling, um, the concept of the soul being holy and pleasing to God, reflecting his own goodness, sharing the divine life, being a child of God, being an heir of heaven. All of these concepts are actually uh, just different facets of the same reality. We know a sanctifying grace. Why is it so important to uh, receive the Blessed Sacrament and Holy Communion if a soul in the state of sanctifying grace already has um, these virtues of faith, hope, and charity? They already have the indwelling of the Because Holy love never loves enough. True love wants to love more. The supernatural power of the Blessed Sacrament at work in the soul 
Love wants to express itself. And this is how God himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, has ex expresses his love for us by coming to us in the Blessed Sacrament. And this is what he calls upon us to do, to express our love for him in coming to receive him, the Blessed Sacrament. It is ultimately a union and exchange of love. This is what our Lord wants. This is what the Beloved wants. And this is what the lover of God gives. What the Beloved wants, this is what he asks of us. You read St. John chapter 6 and you see how important this is to our Lord. And he would watch hundreds, maybe thousands of people walk away from him. The very people who wanted to make him the king the day before. The very people he fed in the desert before. He watches them walk away muttering, this is a hard saying, who can listen to this? But you see how important it is to him. Even asking his apostles, will you also walk away? That's how important this is to our Lord. Can't we understand that? Can't we see the significance of this? Are we so dull that we can't understand what our Lord is telling us by this? How important this is to him? As an act of his love for us, the means he gives us to participate and share in the sacrifice that he's going to offer. I mean, why does Jesus say to the apostles when he enters the upper room on Holy Thursday night, it is with a great longing that I have desired, anticipated, reclining with you and eating of this meal with you this night, right? The night he gives them his blessed sacrament. The night he gives them his priesthood. Can we not... What, what, what blindness is there or dullness of heart is there that prevents us from understanding the significance of this to our Lord? What is he trying to tell us here? And if we loved him, how could we not find this so significant to him that it would be significant to us? I mean, if you love someone, what's important to them is important to you. Because they are important to you. And if these things are as significant to our Lord, and anyone can say, eh, well, who cares? What does this say of them? They don't love him. They do not have the love for him that they need. So um, that's why it's necessary, because he wills it. And the, and the soul that loves him, um, because it loves him, wills that too. Um, in seeing how important it is to our Lord and Savior that we receive him worthily in Holy Communion, um, that he actually communicate the power of his sacrificial life, death, and resurrection to us in this way. Um, someone who loves him doesn't need any more than that. Doesn't need any more than that. <laughs> Um, what, what, Father, what are the effects of receiving Holy Communion? What does it mean to increase in Increase in sanctifying grace. What does that and mean? In other words, well, I just said, if sanctifying grace really is what makes us so holy and pleasing to God, it makes us so holier and even more pleasing to God, gives the soul a greater participation in the divine life, as it increases in the soul the virtues of faith and hope and charity. Anything that increases in the soul the virtues of faith and hope and charity and it does this because the act of receiving our Lord lovingly as an act of love simply necessarily increases our love for God. 
Every act of love we make for our Lord, of its very nature, opens the soul to grace and the grace that is to love him more. And that is the very key to everlasting life. It's the creed, the, 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 the uh, key to the sanctification of the soul, and it is the key to sanctifying grace. Right? Um, it is like a treasury, but a divine treasury in the soul. And uh, when we receive Holy Communion, it is designed as a sacrament to be an act of love, and it is designed, therefore, as a sacrament to increase the love of God in the soul. And that increase of love of God for God in the soul is um, necessarily to, to increase what we, what we call sanctifying grace. The soul becomes holier, sanctified. Is that mysterious? I mean, you're asking on, the, on behalf of others, I'm sure. Right? <laughs> Very mysterious. But you understand. Father? There's a mystery, mystery of grace. Stuff. There's a mystery of grace at work here. Yeah. Yeah. And well, uh, uh, one has to actually <coughs> understand this uh, in divine terms more than human terms. That has to come through prayer. That really has to come through meditation. <clears throat> it has to come through prayer and meditation that we enter into the mysteries of God, right? We talk about the spiritual life. We talk about the ages of the spiritual life. The first age of our conversion of sin, so that we can live day by day, not in the, in the state of mortal sin, but in the state of sanctifying grace. Once we've achieved that, we've actually come through the purgative way, and we're ready to move on to the next level, which is the illuminative way. And in the illuminative way of the, of the spiritual life, we begin to understand more, as it were, God's understanding and perspective. <clears throat> we begin to have a greater understanding and appreciation for the, the, the very mysterious things of God. Not that we actually ever comprehend these things, but we begin to understand better <clears throat> what is in the mind of God. God gives us this grace, even mystical experiences to enlighten our minds. Again, we would call them sanctified, actual graces. But this can only come about when one perseveres in the spiritual life to live habitually in the state of sanctifying grace and love God and want more because one loves God. One wants to know God better, <clears throat> to have a firmer hope in him and love him with, with greater generosity. And this leads one on then to the next level of the illuminative way. And it's called the illuminative way because God answers in prayer the desires of that soul to know him, to know him better, to understand him better. So they say that's the beginning kind of, of the mystical life of the soul. Um, the, the soul that doesn't really pray, that says prayers and goes through the motions of prayer, but never actually succeeds in raising the mind and the heart to God so that the awareness is there and everything else is forgotten. Uh, the soul that does not uh, enter into that prayer of meditation 
will never advance beyond a certain level of a very rudimentary and crude understanding of these things. Uh, they will be words, but the realities will be very elusive. You know? And uh, one really has to uh, not just um, say prayers in order to, um, as it were, open the mind and the heart for those that special light from God. Um, the only way thing that can penetrate the, 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 the light that penetrates the soul has to come from the real perseverance in meditating. And uh, as our Lord said, knock and knock and knock and persist in doing that. And when we meditate, we are that. We're standing at the door. And, we're, and, uh, and, and um, our Lord said that persistence will, will obtain for us what we ask for. So I ask everyone, I suggest everyone to do that. You read the lives of the saints, but you read their writings, um, and you get a certain whiff of this, and it introduces the soul to a deeper understanding, the understanding that they received by their prayer. And so, uh, again, as a, a catapult to launch our prayers, we should read and understand the benefit of their meditations and take them to heart and ask God to enable us then to build upon their, their knowledge, upon their faith, their hope, and their love for God by the spiritual readings that we do. This is what is, gives us the fuel, as it were, for our own prayer and meditation. Uh, in any case, um, if, if you... Uh, after all I've said here, uh, have no greater understanding or appreciation for the realities of these things than attribute it to my own failure <laughs> to be able to convey uh, these things. Don't attribute it to, I, I say this to everyone, attribute it to some lack in you. Uh, find the fault in me in failing to actually being able to convey uh, any greater understanding. Okay. No, I think that's so, very helpful, Father. But don't tell me because I might try again. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'm not sure I would succeed any great more the second time. Okay. Yeah. But I'll go back to the drawing board. More prayer, more meditation. Yeah. All right. We uh, we almost made up for our uh, uh, absence last week, Fathers. So oh my goodness. Maybe we, can, maybe we can stop there, but. Thank you for uh, sharing all of that. Well, Father Greenwell always uh, said that my, my words are like the words of God, uh, eternal and incomprehensible. So, <laughs> okay. In that regard, I suppose there might be some vague similarity. But, um, but anyway, well, Tom, thank you. And yes. please pray for all those intentions we uh, put before you. Today. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Father. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you. And God bless you.